This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? to have you on i really really enjoyed the book oh i'm so glad i'm so glad you're the first person i've spoken to about this kind of walking as you refer to yourself as a walking artist but it's also sounds very much like walking as like a spiritual practice oh very much yes very much yeah spiritual practice just a way of being in the world activism all of it yeah, very much. Yeah, everything. Yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're gonna get into mm-hmm. as as much of that as we can. So I love it. I'll start by introducing you. Okay, great. My guest is Jonathan Stalls. He spent 242 days walking across the country in 2010, and has continued to walk alongside thousands of people for thousands of miles. He describes himself as a walking artist. He identifies as queer and gay. He advocates and organizes for racial, economic, and social justice. He's currently the creator of Intrinsic Paths and the Pedestrian Dignity Campaign. And he's the founder of Walk to Connect. And he's the author of this wonderful book that we're going to be talking about, Walk, Slow Down, Wake Up, and Connect at one to three miles per hour. (laughs) I love the subtitle. All right. (laughs) There's so much in it. It's a mouthful. But I just, I was like, ah, there's so much there. Yeah. (laughs) And I especially love doing it all at one to three miles per hour. 
Yes, you know, the spaces between honoring people's unique pace is so important to me. Yeah. And I think that's really indicative of the way the natural world works. I mean, that's the speed. Well, there are fast animals in the yeah. world and we run sometimes. And in yeah. our modern world, of course, we've got all this hyper technology, but nature seems to operate at an organic um, yeah much slower speed than we've become accustomed to. Oh my gosh, completely agree. Yeah, and there's so many kind of waves when things hurry up. Like I think about a river and a stream a lot where there's, you know, you have often rapids and crashing, but so much of it is flow. It's a flow state and then there's pools of rest and calm edges. I mean, I just, all the things. And that's why, yeah, a lot of my creative work is you know, under this kind of umbrella called intrinsic, you know, kind of this, just kind of how it's, at least I believe imperfectly that, you know, we're made, the things that we're made to be doing and the way we're made to be maybe operating in the world in some way. Yeah. And also you mentioned how rivers flow and, and many places in the world, rivers meander very slowly so that it gives time for water to soak into the ground or for the ground to soak up as much water as it needs completely absolutely yes meander is the great word a great way to frame it (laughs) and in a way the way you describe your walking you don't describe it as meandering but you're doing it at a meandering pace yeah yeah very much a lot of the invitations um you know, and hence the subtitle of slowing down as well. I use the term unhurried a lot, you know, and recognizing that we all have different relationships to moving on foot and as pedestrians. And a lot of times there's a default to hurry to the destination and and a need to, depending on where we are in life. But there's something that the practice and the invitation of being unhurried, really just a little more present, a little more available to what's going on around us and in us and between us is a huge invitation moving through the book. And I love the way you wrote about walking as being like a wondrous portal. Yeah, very much. You know, the last chapter is titled, well, there's two chapters that come to mind around that frame. And there's a chapter titled Walking as Creative Wonder. And the last chapter of the book is titled Walking as Mystery. And you know, there's an endless chorus of spontaneous, mysterious, surprise-like experiences that can happen just in a 20, 30-minute walk or roll if you're on a wheelchair. You know, the blossoms, the flowers, the trees, the sky, the clouds, the animals, the humans you share that location with. There's so much. The, The portal is Again, it seems so basic when we think about something so human to be moving this way. But when we have so much that is working to kind of keep us indoors or keep us behind screens or keep us in automobiles, it really is a portal to something that is mysterious and wondrous. And I often find when we're attentive to it, really healing, really healing and and meaningful. Yeah. Or if we're moving too fast to really be available to all the portals that are constantly opening up to us. Completely, yeah. I I use the term a lot in the book. There's an actual subsection called the grief of bypassing, 
And it's exactly that. It's exactly what you said. It's, you know, and that's not with judgment. That's not with, we're all in these really unique places in life, but there's just, there's just a lot of room for us to create, even if it's 10 minutes of moving a little slower within our commute or within our patterns and schedules to take it a little slower, to be available to those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Portal is one of my favorite words. Oh, love it. And now as you're you're talking more about it, walking is starting to sound more and more like meditation. Yeah. And yet meditation can have an almost negative connotation as being like a chore, something that you're supposed to do for your own well-being and perhaps yeah. spiritual development and things like that, you know, a sense of obligation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Could you talk about how you began approaching walking and how you approach walking in a way that feels natural for you and isn't a chore? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the question. And, you know, even just the frames around meditation, you know, I talk about that in the book where sitting and stillness meditation is is hard for me. I am an active person my whole life. I've always you know, multitask. One hand would be drawing a picture. The other hand would be stacking things in a room. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly moving energy, it feels like. And so being in a seated place in a still place is actually really good for me, but it's not natural <laughs> for me, or at least it doesn't feel that way. And so meditation, I think sometimes as the default, sometimes we, we attach a default to it related to seated, quiet, still, and you know, throughout the book, I'm just kind of constantly breaking that up a little bit related to, you know, a more natural kind of falling into meditative states and practices. There's something that I really love, and I really love connecting this a little bit to the biology of walking and neuroscience related to walking, like what happens in the brain, in our cellular neurosystems that make it easier for us to kind of calm down, to wind down, to be more relaxed or to have a more relaxed kind of mental state. And so I'm always, always, always benefiting from after 20, 30 minutes, and a lot of neuroscientists will back this up. After 20, 30 minutes, you know, you're starting to form new neuropathways. You're clearing parts of your brain or places that feel stuck, places we store stress or heavy things. And so you're literally moving through and beyond and breaking up things that are stuck. And you're at the same time creating new neuropathways. And so alongside the book, you know, I use a lot of just creative ways to, to kind of drop little practices that say, okay, next time you're on a 20, 30 minute walk, make your way to a tree, take a couple deep breaths and just be with the way the leaves sound in the wind or be with the way the sun is starting to set or be with the texture, return to your senses, like feel the breeze as it hits your skin, feel the way the bark on the tree, like the texture of the bark as it's about to fall off or as it kind of cracks and bends and twists. And so there's a lot of invitation around sensory experiences. And so all of that to say, for me, connected to your question, it's so much more natural for me to kind of move into a place of restfulness or even stillness and breathing and kind of meditative presence if I'm kind of stumbling into it after 20, 30 minutes of walking rather than kind of that fixed, all right, play the singing bowl, start the clock, you got 20 minutes, 
And sometimes that is still really helpful for me, but it feels more natural often when I'm walking. And so to your question, like I've always, you know, ever since my long walk in 2010, when I did a walk across the US, that was my 242 day classroom around how much walking has become medicine for me and a way of life. It is my greatest teacher. It is my medicine. It is my portal and many portals, as we talked about earlier, to so many different places and spaces. And so it really has become a way of life and it helps me calm down. It helps me feel creative. It helps me make meaningful connections. It helps, you know, I'm a pedestrian primarily. I don't own a car. So it's also my commute to get to destinations and places I need to go. So all of those things. So what happens when you get past 30 minutes or a few hours of leisurely walking and your nervous system and your brain are already settled into a completely different level of experience and relationship with the world? What happens on these really long walks? It sounds like a lot more starts opening up. Absolutely. In obvious ways, it's different for each of us. It definitely has you know, there's particular things that meet all of us in different ways, but I really love kind of the neuroscience framing of it around just how our bodies are designed and how we've evolved to where we are. And so, you know, thinking about the vestibular system, if you've ever heard of that, related to how our bodies are connected to the earth's core and to gravity and all the different things that have to go on that have to fire in our neuro networks to kind of keep our bodies upright, or if we're in a wheelchair, still upright and moving and together. And all of those firings between, you know, brain energy, heart energy, cells and veins and bones and muscles to keep our body not only upright, but then to also be in motion and stay upright and not fall. Gravity wants us down. And so how we participate in these really kind of biological, physiological states and so then connecting that to your question, I'd feel like there's so much there that affirms just how much gets broken up. You know, I'm often kind of framing stuckness or, you know, areas where we feel like not only physically sedentary, but maybe mentally sedentary where, you know, things that we're all carrying heavy things and hard things at times and complex things, things that don't often have words and they stack and they stack and they stack and and really, there's a science to it, but an art to it. And, and I often frame it in the frame of medicine and, you know, to see it as an actual intention and as a tool for how we clear, how we open. And so the whole chapter, Walking is Creative Wonder, I really like as an example, because, you know, back to that framing of creating new neural pathways, I'm always encouraging people, and there's practices in the book connected to this, but if there's something you're trying to discern, maybe it's something really complex, maybe it's within a relationship, maybe it's something within your work, maybe it's a big decision or discernment within your family, anything. And seeking, desiring, creative thought, practice, process alongside of those things you know, it's hard to feel that sometimes when we're in a sedentary, more of a stuck place. And we think about walls, 90 degree walls that a lot of us are inside of. We think about screens, we think about cars, maybe moving quickly from place to place. So we're not necessarily engaging in the very tools and systems that we have in our bodies 
to break up the stuckness and be imaginative, be creative, kind of live and breathe and move in the spaces between the stuckness to imagine different ways and different layers of discernment. So I think to your question of what starts to happen after that 20, 30 minutes or those couple of hours when you just keep clearing things that feel stuck. And so it doesn't mean they just go away. It doesn't mean you're solving things right away, but you're literally making more room on the inside and you're connecting with a much more spacious environment on the outside that affirms some of the spaciousness that you start to feel on the inside. And that stuckness that you were talking about, it made me think of how in our current culture, we tend to get so distracted by everything around us, whether it's technology, whether it's social injustice, politics, or just our own thinking, our own issues. But when we're stuck, it's like we're in a permanent state of distraction. Oh my gosh, completely. Yeah, and I think it's a great tie-in because I often think there's also this really beautiful, and I talk about it a lot in two chapters. One is walking as relationship, and then there's another walking as resistance. And I think about kind of justice movements and different, you know, connecting to people who are different than we are and caring for and listening to the earth and the things that are happening around us related to water or people groups or anything that's kind of experiencing any level of harm or disconnection or oppression. And one of the things that I really care about so much related to some of the invitations in this book is there's there's just this constant invitation when you're moving with these things, that we are moving with these complex frameworks. We're moving with each other as we navigate them. We're moving with potentially even people who disagree with us or don't see it or experience it themselves, but we're moving. We're moving forward. We're under a big open sky. We're not discerning such complex things that need to be faced, met, moved with, understood, felt, inside of just walls and screens and in our minds. But I often reference, you know, the beauty and the benefit of protest or, or kind of having these kind of gatherings where people are moving together to express a certain, you know, passion or, or injustice or something. They're so powerful when people are coming together to move their bodies in demonstration or move their bodies in connection or invitation. And so because to me, what starts to happen, and I, I repeat it so much in the book, but I use the term separation a lot. There is so much out there and even in us because of all the messages we receive every day that wants to separate you from me and me from you, that wants to separate me from the planet and the tree and the water, that wants to separate even me from the real things that are going on in the inside to separate it, to block it. And sometimes we got to do that for our own care and survival and protection. But at some point, you know, the invitations that I'm trying to very, you know, imperfectly bring up in this book are how do we break apart so much that wants to separate us? And how do we start weaving that in some great circle, I believe that you and I are connected. And so your hurt and pain and dreams and joy are connected to mine. And the same goes for the trees and the air that we breathe and the birds and and the things that we experience when we're out in the world and that we are connected cosmically, radically. And if we are connected and if we believe that we are, how do we care for that connection and protect it and nurture it and learn from it? 
And I just, I think walking or moving in an unhurried way is just one, one beautiful, very, very intrinsic, inherent thing we are made to be doing that can tend to that and nurture that in a lot of creative ways. So yeah, walking to break out of like societal norms. Yeah. Have you experienced people who you experience and see with very set views and belief systems have you seen them change just from walking? Absolutely, all the time. And I don't know that the change is binary or overly linear. All of a sudden, kind of a mental, like quick, like flip the switch sort of thing. But I absolutely see and feel and experience kind of back to what we were talking about, making more room, that there's just a breaking up of the clinging the posturing, the holding on so tightly to a position or a posture or a way of like over identifying. It's just making more room because all of a sudden the trees and the rivers and the sunset and the mysteries and the unique kind of dignity of this person that I'm moving with, like how could it not start to break up? I often use the term certainty, like just break up certainty doesn't mean that we don't have things that we trust our lived experiences it doesn't mean that we root down into things we believe but there's a really tricky line sometimes when it goes to certainty like i'm certain that this is the you know and it's like wait <laughs> have you spent time looking at a sunrise or a sunset can you tell me now in the beauty and mystical energy of this sky that you are certain it's like at some point we are fumbling, messy, broken, wild beings out here trying. So there's just something about like, I think the humility, it's why the second chapter in the book is walking as humility, because it just feels like, you know, one of the main practices in that book, it's very simple, but with one foot, you know, I invite try a walking practice where with one foot you step and you kind of speak to yourself or speak outside or invite inside with your breath like you speak i trust my lived experience so with your one foot i trust my lived experience and then with the other foot i have no idea <laughs> i have no idea what this all means where are we all going and why and the other foot i trust my lived experience i have no idea and you know however you connect to that or not the practice of humility around do we actually know and why are we clinging so hard is an important one. And I think walking or moving with our fragile frames outside of controlled temperatures and refrigerators. And I think in it of itself, without me even having to say anything, the environment will teach you, teach us about fragility and brokenness, but also wonder and awe and beauty. So all those things I could go on and on. Yeah, I love that. But first, we have to be willing and courageous enough to take that step outside of, of our, I like to use the term, kitty litter box. Yes, yeah, totally. Oh, my gosh. And it's messy. Like, this is where it's like, there's no perfection. There's no arriving. You know, like, we all have it. I have it. I'm always, it's why it's like, I'm always fumbling. I'm, I don't pretend for a second to be outside of this kind of messy you know, it's just messy stuff. To me, as a queer person, I just, I constantly lean on this more nonlinear 
you know, way through the world where it's just not about kind of a fixed, it's just to your point, like at some point we just like, how do we try and be willing to try, be willing to open up, be willing to break some things up. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things in that that I love. And I love the association of queer with nonlinearity. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there is so much in nature. I'm always referencing the trees, all the twisting branches, the shedding of all this spirally, curly bark, the way trees communicate resilience and rooting deeper, but also like fragility and knowing when the branch or several branches need to bend and twist and go in a whole new direction or when they just need to break off so that other branches can grow in other places. You know, even if you see a very linear, straight looking tree and you see a lot of trees really trying hard to do that, if you get into the details, these branches and these these stories of it's just not one line and none of us are one line. And there's a really beautiful path if we can connect there. And, and I think that's where walking with intention and with practice, I think it can bring us there in a kind of a lived experiential sort of way. Mm hmm. And also this association of walking with water and how yeah. water is like this universal solvent that mm -hmm. overcomes everything. It break, literally breaks down and erodes everything in its path. And I get this sense from the way you talk about and write about walking that if you walk and you move in an unhurried way and you allow yourself to enter into that vastness of that space yeah. that that quite literally everything that arises and there's always stuff arising within us our past mm -hmm. issues our worries our fears all kinds of crap comes up if we're paying attention even if we're not paying attention it just keeps coming up but if we're paying attention we can work with it but it seems like in the space of that walking creates and allows as all this stuff comes up, that if we just stay with it in whatever way we were able to stay with it, yeah, just the spaciousness of walking and being as present as we can be within that walking, that like water, it'll break everything down eventually. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yes. It's a great, yes. I felt myself moving with you as you were sharing. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think that is that is the biggest ache in this whole book, what you just shared. It's that like that tender, nurturing relationship, you know, and in the book, I talk a lot about, you know, I get fiery in that book, y'all. I get like there's some things in there I share, too, around even honoring our edges and, and the fire and even maybe the anger that we feel, too. And, you know, it's recognizing that we all have different layers of things that can belong on a walk in a sense and with a river and with water to affirm it to nourish it to nurture it to see it and i think that's such a powerful invitation i use the term a lot in the book kind of a moving participant you know we're participating with the water and the trees we're not we're not separate from them or treating the water and the trees as commodities only or like a transactional relationship it's it's actually a relationship it's something that is reciprocal and and connected and and if we allow for that to happen when we're moving in a humble way my goodness the things that that we can like you said that we can tend to and kind of break up and not allow 
you know, those things to take us down because, you know, there's a lot that wants to take us down, you know, and I think that having practices and medicine like this is so, it's just such an opportunity. And it sounds like we don't even necessarily have to do a lot of work with the breaking down of things that if we just open up into the process of walking, like flowing water, that things naturally break down. Yes. Yes. Over time. If if we have the kind of patience right. that, that comes with moving in an unhurried way. That's right. Yes. Yes. That is such an important it's not a gimmick. It's not a it's I mean, it's not something that, you know, you need to overly study in advance and kind of check all the boxes to do it right. There's none of that. It's it's literally like you said earlier, just finding a place to start right out your front door or whatever door and there's a tree move towards it breathe with it do it several times a week don't have expectations don't worry about solving anything but just the invitation alone allowing the walking and the movement to literally be the balm itself and be open to kind of what starts to show up yeah Jonathan Stalls describes himself as a walking artist. He advocates and organizes for racial, economic, and social justice. And he's the author of this wonderful book, Walk, Slow Down, Wake Up, and Connect at one to three miles per hour. So how did you discover walking? How did you begin walking? And what did it do for you? And what did you encounter within yourself as you first started walking? Yeah. You know, I'd done some hikes when I was younger, like once in a while or, you know, walked in the woods a little bit, you know, just kind of roaming as a kid. But I was mostly shuttled around in cars from place to place. It's kind of how I was raised. I moved every two years growing up and lived in mostly the suburbs, pretty spread out from school and destinations. And so, you know, there was a lot of disconnection there. You know, a lot of things were stacking up in my life up to my mid 20s. One of them was coming out. Coming out was really difficult for me. There were a lot of layers to that process, coming out as gay and queer. I'm a very sensitive person. I'm an artist, but I buried a lot. I'm a master suppressor. I was back then at a level that was devastating and difficult now still, <laughs> but working through it and have more tools. But I, I really struggled to figure out who I wanted to be and how to move forward. And so I knew that I needed an experience that would really, really break things up, that would help me to restart, that would help me to recalibrate, because I didn't trust that I would survive. There's a lot of suicide in my family, and so that was a big part of things that were starting to show up for me in my mid-20s, and I knew I needed a big experience to kind of break some things up, and I was terrified. And there was a great book called Walk Across America that I stumbled upon at my college library. It was a 20-cent book sale, and I saw it there staring into my gut, and I was like, what? And I sat on a chair and I canceled all my classes and read that book for two days, cover to cover. And I just knew that was the kind of experience I was looking for. And I left that following year on March 1st from the Delaware coast and had a backpack that weighed way too much. I had my dog with me who joined me and had no idea where I was going to sleep or, you know, I had a couple of things set up at the beginning, but after the first couple of days, I was truly with the wind and terrified of all those things but knowing that i just had to do it and so 
That walk, the 242 days from Delaware to San Francisco, straight through the middle of the country. You know, I stayed with 120 strangers. I walked with hundreds of people in different stages, people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And I was so eager that it was a very intentional journey to be literally be a sponge. I wanted to absorb wisdom, teaching, guidance from, you know, nature, natural world, people, communities, villages. I wanted to have the time to work through and be with, stomp out, but also invite things that are, you know, happening on the inside. And and that's what it was. It was that experience that, you know, I, I left the Delaware coast afraid, terrified, really, really working through and facing some you know, layers of kind of self-hatred, just to name it, and did not feel in any way this frame. I, I The second to last chapter is titled Walking as Rite of Passage. And I really connect to these experiences that can really kind of help shed. It doesn't always have to be a, a multi-month walk across any country. It can happen in a lot of different ways. But for me, it was just this shedding of old skin. And that's what this walk was. It was exactly that. And at the beginning, I left with this frame of, I don't feel like I have what it takes. I don't feel like I have what it takes to be strong, to love who I am. And those are all very real and, and very kind of deep, complex feelings and emotions. And I got to that shore on the West Coast after eight and a half months. And, you know, I wouldn't say I arrived anywhere or solved all the things, but I could tap into this and consistently tap into this I have what it takes. I have what it takes to feel strong. I'm starting to love who I am in ways that I've never been able to do before. I'm, I'm learning from nature and people and my, like I ran into the Pacific ocean with a whole different way in the world, color coming out in all directions. And, and it was really powerful. So from that day on, that was like, okay, this is my this is my medicine. This is my teacher. This is my tool. I need to keep walking, to shed, to open, to learn, to witness, and all the things. Yeah. That's so beautiful. So this book of yours is full of stories of your encounters while walking, many of them magical and wonderful, but some of them are also very uh, unsettling and and at one point, you and your dog, Kanoa, actually almost died on the road. Mm-hmm. So yeah. walking is not all joy and pleasure and wonder, because you walk on all kinds of roads and in all kinds of conditions. Um, that was something that that struck me, because I love walking in the woods and on trails. Mm-hmm. I actually don't particularly enjoy walking on roads. I have friends who walk a lot. You know, they just mm-hmm. love to go out on walks, but they walk on roads. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, for me, walking on roads is like the way sitting for meditation is for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Real, yes. <laughs> so how how do you talk about your experience of walking on roads and and things like that compared to walking in nature? Because I think many of us, particularly up where I am, we can all relate to the wonder and natural joy of being in the woods or in nature, but being on the road where you're having cars whizzing by, 
Talk yeah. about the difference for you and why you do that. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm so grateful you asked that. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much there and I, I'll do my best to summarize a little bit. You know, I'm always kind of framing, you know, the beauty and the awe and the wonder, but also the devastation and the harm and the disconnect related to a lot of things. And I, I care so much. It's why it shows up in the book a lot about the tension of that, like the literal tension, the tension of the beauty and the awe and the wonder, the natural things, the things that are calling us into places of connection and deeper breathing and, you know, but also the harm and the devastation of what are we doing and what do we continue to do to each other, to the planet, to our own bodies. And I find that road walking, you know, again, as another form of medicine and practice, it is to me, there's a there's a really important tension around accountability, responsibility. I live here. What am I doing and what am I participating in? How am I witnessing hundreds, millions of people that have no choice who can't drive a car for medical reasons, financial reasons, legal reasons, physical reasons? There are millions of people that don't have cars that have to depend on a lot of these roads as pedestrians and people who use wheelchairs or via transit. How do they get to the bus stops? What are the bus stops like? Do they have benches? Do they have shelter? Do they have shade when they're moving? Are they right up against high-speed traffic? How do people get to the grocery store? Are they just isolated because the environment is so hostile to move the way we're made to move? You know, I would move through across the U.S. and the number of people that I would connect to who are Walking is a grind. Walking is really, really negative and unhealthy and unsafe. And the connotation to walking is actually is extremely devastating and not a positive relationship. And I learned quickly that that tension felt so important to me as an artist, as someone who was really like taking in walking as medicine, like a teacher, like teach me, help me see, help me feel, help me grow, help me listen and so in the book you know i have a campaign for the last several years that i've been you know experimenting with called pedestrian dignity and it's really just kind of an unapologetic like open-ended experimentative always trying to be relational but also being really honest about and not being shy about the harm of kind of car first planning zoning environments and then you add race you add class, you add redlining related to black families, and you, you really kind of unpacking these very real injustices of race and class and people with disabilities and where people live and older generations, older adults, and thinking about schools and students and kids, all these different layers of who can participate safely with dignity in transportation as pedestrians and who can't and why and where all of this stuff. It was a huge classroom. It continues to be a huge classroom. And so while I still need and care for and absolutely must get out on those trails where I'm just surrounded by trees, <laughs> where it's just the water, I need it. It's really important for me from a social, yeah, I, I think a social, even political, you know, I think about ecological, environmental framework to moving on roads as as a witness, as an activist, as an advocate, as relationship to pedestrians and to kind of the conflicts of how easy it has become to really have the car 
kind of take over so much of our public spaces and what it's doing to water and habitats and birds and the air quality. And I care a lot about that tension. And so I would never say I'm a I'm a road walker because I, oh gosh, I need those trails to get me off of that road. <laughs> like I relate because the cars blazing by you is actually devastating to me and stressful. But to me, it's the tension has become such an important learning environment related to a lot of the things I'm working on. And, and I think there's a lot that we can all learn from, all right, here's where I live. If I wanted to go to the grocery store and I didn't have a car, what would that experience be like? And what could I do as a community member to be a part of making that safer and easier and more enjoyable for people who walk more so that it's not just about getting to a trail, but I can enjoy and be in a in a more healthy walking state going to and from work and going to and from school and kind of check a lot of the boxes off at once. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of people in this world who don't have the luxury of getting to enjoy an unhurried lifestyle or being able to walk in an unhurried and connected way that their lives actually depend upon being able to get from one place to another on foot or rolling along in a wheelchair. And you you talk about how public officials, people who do infrastructure planning and that Mm. kind of stuff, they don't walk. They don't walk to places. They either drive or they have people who drive them. So they're completely out of touch. And there's this thing of how politicians are become more and more out of touch with reality as they go on that political journey. Could you talk about those challenges? I get your reasoning for needing to walk on roads. It's like a form of maintaining social awareness. Yeah, yeah, very much. And social awareness, absolutely. And like co-creating how we how we emerge and reimagine transportation so that we really are caring for something that we're made to be doing more and that everyone can be a part of that and experience that and have places where people with disabilities can move with space and accessibility. And oh, there's just so the inclusion reality around all of us kind of coming out together and having community in a way that's so much more natural is such a big ache alongside it all. And yeah, to your question too, it, and your frame on, you know, whether decision makers, in, in a sense, we're all decision makers in, in those sort of ways, as I think public accountability to our officials and, and planners and systems. But I, I think people who are trained in these kind of specialty roles of serving the public, whether as a council member or a state representative, or specifically a planner, planning out environments, an engineer that's actually engineering and measuring and kind of working within these manuals that train students and entire classrooms of new engineers on how to think about and build out transportation. You know, you have all these different roles that, to your point, if the majority of them, like a high majority of them, are all driving as their primary form, how does that skew so many of the things we see right outside our front door related to grocery and play, you know, I I always use the term play because so many of our buildings in the U.S. are so consumer transactional rather than more plazas and places where kids can play and rest and go get your bread and your things and the things that you buy and then hang out for a little bit. So with the people, but we have these 
developments all around us in the U.S. that are just literally drive in, buy the things and drive out, you know, in the question of breaking that up and asking why and what could we be doing and weaving that would help us again stumble into each other's story and journey and and be reminded of kids and play and elders and so there's so many branches that come out of all this but one of the central things within the pedestrian dignity work that i do you know is i frame it as lived experience it's just in all the videos that and i share a lot of i I take a lot of quick clips y'all i'm 39 i don't know what i'm doing on TikTok and instagram but i'm i'm playing with these tools and it's been really beautiful because mostly it's, you know, mixed ages, but mostly kind of a younger generation and trying to just be inviting and educational around the vantage point of a pedestrian moving through typical everyday places and kind of showing examples of where there are gaps or where an entire plan for where a community is, homes, apartments, mixed living to the grocery store, just starting from home to get to the grocery store or to get to the bus stop or the transit station and how that journey as a pedestrian is so often inaccessible, disconnected and terrifying and dangerous. And so, you know, that lived experience framework, like not just thinking about it, but if I experience it, so connected to our planners and engineers and politicians, constantly inviting them out to come with us and host events where they can feel it and to guide them in these experiences like pause for a minute feel the way this smells as we smell the exhaust pipes of hundreds of vehicles passing us every second like hear the way it impacts your ears and your ability to think and to just breathe when you are constantly listening to the sound of rushing traffic as you try to get to the bus stop feel the way this feels in 95 degree temperatures when there's no shelter at the bus stop and the bus stop is right up maybe four feet away from flying traffic and imagine children clenching the hands of your children imagine carrying grocery bags you know kind of these experiential invitations around not only empathy but like how can we all steward a village a community that cares for you know everybody involved and then you know connected to a lot of the beginning of our conversation, all the benefits that come from making moving the way we're made to move easier, safer, more comfortable, more enjoyable. So a lot of the work that I do with Pedestrian Dignity, I, I frame it as kind of decentering the car. It's not getting rid of cars and it's not car shaming, but it's very much taking a, a really honest look at how do we center the very thing that we're made to be doing and create environments that make that easy, safe and accessible and then decide how and where we want to move vehicles versus the other way around. Yeah, and there's very different places in this country, I guess around the world, but particularly in this country, are so different in relation to transportation and pedestrian conditions. Like you described some nightmarish conditions in Denver. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in New York City where very few people own cars or drive cars because it's ridiculous to do so (laughs) because they have such an incredible mass transit system. Right. Yes. So it's so friendly for pedestrians. But then in diametric opposition to New York City, there's Los Angeles. And and the catchword with L.A. is that nobody walks in L.A. because 
it's spread out. And yeah. of course, the most disadvantaged people who don't have cars, who can't afford that, have to depend on shoddy mass transit systems. Yeah. Or yeah. else they have to walk in dangerous and unhealthy conditions. And many people in this country, depending on where they live, will either be exposed to things like that or they'll be completely ignorant of those kind of conditions. Absolutely. Completely. And that's exactly why the lived experience thing is so important, you know, where I'm not spending too much time explaining it. I mean, I'm using some words and I'm guiding it a little bit, but I really care about people showing up to physical events or just moving with me in these videos so that it's that really kind of hitting the side, especially of, you know, people that are just kind of unaware and kind of opening up awareness and getting creative around awareness because of how deep we are in and you're right, New York City, I mean, even still, some of the outskirts of the city, and there are still so many things related to accessibility. But to your point, compared to other places in the U.S., I mean, New York City is kind of the one example. There's a couple areas in D.C. or in Chicago, even, or in San Francisco and in Portland. But these are kind of really unique, dense urban cores. Um, and so we think about, you know, how expensive it is to live in the urban cores and, you know, so to your point of like, who's really like, we think about affordability and access and where people live. And it's so unsafe as people are trying to navigate everyday jobs and trainings and doctor appointments. And, you know, there's just so and, and just all the benefits. And this is where I think the tension is so important, because it's like, okay, for people that are experiencing trails and trees and calmness and meditate like experiencing the benefits to me that tension it's such an opportunity because in some ways some of the best advocates out there for why we would want to have our cities and communities more designed this way is so that it's as easy as possible to kind of just go right outside and be invited to experience those benefits and to have other people experience them and so I think there's just there's just a lot of room around the tension because if it's and this is also why it's not just the devastation and the harm and the the speed, you know, even though that's the real lived experience for so many people, you'll see in the book several practices are just like if you already experience the world as a pedestrian and as where your relationship to moving this way is devastating and difficult and dehumanizing, you know, consider if you can, even just 10 minutes to pause under a tree along the way to breathe, to be with it. You know, some of these different little glimpses to experience the beauty, find ways to get out to a trail and a stream, you know. So anyway, there's the tension of reclaiming something that has been really devastating and difficult, but to find ways to reclaim it so that it can be medicine still in the midst of the storm. And it's interesting, when I visit New York City, I actually really enjoy walking in the city. Yeah, yeah. Just walking. Yes. With, with no destination. I'll literally walk up and down Manhattan, spend the yeah. entire day walking. And to me, it's as enjoyable and enriching as walking in nature in a strange sort of way. Totally. Yes. And to me, that's the... You know, we're not meant to have these roads that just spread out corporate stores for miles and miles. <laughs> and yet we we have them. And how do we navigate and break it up and change some things? But 
to your point, like so many of us, so many people going to Europe or experience, whether they go to Europe or to New York City or they go to college, you know, because a lot of college campuses can be more dense and walkable. It's like the actual accountability and relationship to the fact that I feel when a space is made for human scale movement, where things are not just blown up so that the cars see them on the highway, but these signs are like kind of just hanging over the door. There's benches, there's trees, there's interesting local micro businesses and artists and different walks of life and backgrounds moving from place to place. I mean, it is a full on experience and I'm with you. I also have that same experience in these kind of more dense settings. And I think it doesn't have to be as dense as New York City, but we can all have experiences like these more. It's why I love, you know, even through with and alongside the pandemic, a lot of street closures have happened where people can kind of take over like the main street. They're experimenting to give people more room and space, but also for creative rest and community and art making and places for kids to play. So there's there's a lot of creative stuff happening now around how cities and towns and communities kind of reclaim public spaces. And, you know, again, it's not we can't realistically get rid of all cars and that's not the point. But how do we think about, you know, reclaiming space for people to be people and to bring us together in those kinds of ways? It's just it's such an opportunity. Mm -hmm. How did the pandemic affect walking for you? Yeah. It definitely has in some ways. I would say what I loved, I saw and felt so many more people slowing down. I just felt people slowing down energetically. I, I think being someone that's, you know, I walk roughly eight to 15 miles a day. So I'm constantly kind of absorbing energy. It feels like, you know, the frenetic pressure of people around me, the speed of where people are going. And so you know, pretty quickly experiencing how people were literally just out moving to move, to wander, to process. I noticed a lot of that. Being a pedestrian primarily, I was still having to navigate systems and get through, mask up, bus riding, whatever. And there was just tension around transportation in general related to the pandemic. And again, it fueled a lot of my work with pedestrian dignity because there was just so much messaging around this assumption that everyone can stay home, everyone has a car if they need it, and that's just not the real world. Millions of people can't drive, and millions of people still needed to get to work, and it felt like almost these two different worlds that I would kind of dip into and out. I'd be on the bus, I'd be moving with people who were terrified or just going to the hospitals, essential workers, like just you know, and I would limit my transportation when I could, but it was just really interesting how so much of the narrative was around this assumption that every single person has a car and they can stay home. And, you know, that was just an interesting tension to kind of constantly walk with and move with. But I would say the overarching experience with it was just the way I think more people in general, just across the board, even people who were not everybody, but there was just a sense of everyone was just moving a little slower, a little more on the tender side and taking their time, not as rushed. And that was just a really interesting thing to observe and experience. Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, you write about the need for unconditional love and healing in the face of the social justice crises in the world. Mm. And you reference things like 
white supremacy. And you have this wonderful term that you sort of alluded to that you refer to as the devastating separation in the world and Mm -hmm. inside of many of us in relation to what's going on in the world. And then you ask, what is unconditional love asking of us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really grateful you read that out. Yeah, I I think because of all the walks that I've been on with people from different backgrounds, so many miles moving shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip, heart to heart with people who have different lived experiences than me. I'm a white cis male, you know, I am gay and queer, but I'm a white man moving through the world and I have a certain, you know, understanding, you know, history and and current situations. I've learned a lot related to redlining because I walk streets every day and understand where the red lines are and red lines are if you're unfamiliar places where homes and schools were only for black families on one side of the line and were only for white families on the other so segregation in all the ways and how it plays out still seeing these roads and intersections and crossings show up in some areas but not in others you know thinking about development and people who have wealth and money and the things that they're able to do with it versus you know So thinking about class and just village and care. And I have a lot of indigenous friends and peers that I've walked with, moved with, learned from, and and kind of the the work of healing and repairing indigenous roots and thinking about the harm of what was and what is, you know, being done in the name of, you know, I use the term a couple of times in the book, colonization, thinking of anything coming in. And I kind of frame this in that part of the book, like anything coming in, assuming moral authority based on a white, straight, male, Christian, I would just say unique to the U.S. perspective and kind of maintaining that authority, both in people who are representing and making decisions on big things, rules, systems, ways of the world, like knowing that we're all messy, knowing that we're evolving, knowing that we're figuring this out, but just this kind of maintaining of a certain way of thinking and moving through the world and the harm of that moral authority and that kind of power frame. It's the very thing that pushed me to my own edge before I left for my long walk. It's the very thing that told me that being gay, being sensitive, being an artist was not welcome in this world. And so I have my own kind of angst and (laughs) resistance against that. But then I also have moved with so many people who are white, would identify as white, straight, Christian even, and all the kind of the, the grief and the brokenness and the, and the messiness of, the, of moving through the world as a human being. So it's this like, I always go back to the term tension and it's kind of that question that you asked, like what is unconditional love asking us? And, you know, I don't know that there's an answer for any of it, but I think it's, harmful to not name the harm and move and just be honest about the harm. What's happened? What's happening? How do we name the things that are preventing certain voices or shaming certain voices or trying to control certain voices and lived experiences and wisdom and allowing, inviting, nourishing, encouraging, being in relationship to those voices and wisdom lineages moving with us and guiding us? And I think it comes from walking with and moving with so many people who represent and move through the world from those lineages and backgrounds. And 
I am forever learning and I'm forever kind of deconstructing all my own upbringings and lineages. And it's an imperfect journey. So it's why it felt just important to me to name the harm of white supremacy, because I felt it, I've lived it, I've experienced it, I've walked with and alongside hundreds of people who have been and are harmed by it. And I see what so much of it has done to the planet. You know, I think about this kind of commodified relationship to people in the earth, that things can be taken, the transactional relationship, the earth is for my use rather than a relationship and a nurturing reciprocity, like all those things, you know, and that's just come from walking and listening and opening myself towards it. And then the unconditional love, like I had so many different people and families from that demographic, that kind of that white, straight, Christian, typical, you know, I had so many amazing families from that framework host me on my walk and these connections and these conversations, like the heart just kind of breaks and bleeds when <laughs> you can't make sense of anything. And I just, I, there, there's some, there's some place of just falling into the void of it all and, and the grief, but also the opportunity for love and, and healing and connection. And so Anyway, that's a long kind of circular way of moving alongside your question. It's an important thing to name and invite. And I don't I don't know that I have answers, but I know that I know that walking with and moving with people who are different than we are from a place of openness, not being afraid to name what's harmful and being in a space of listening and being in a place of humility and seeking love is is an important invitation. That was great. I'm so grateful for that response. And mm. it reminded me back to the portal. Yeah, the portal, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. Where amazing, magical things can happen that you would not expect. In fact, you might even assume were not possible. Right, that part, completely. That's right, yeah. It's why the last chapter is walking is mystery, because it's just this, at the end of the day, like my goodness. <laughs> This is, and I think it's the, the theme of humility kind of running through the whole thing. Like there's just, yes, the portal piece is, is beautiful. Yeah, and very real. I experience it to be very real. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably, well, it's one of my favorite aspects of this world mm -hmm. that I get to live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, likewise. And at the same time, it's also the portal outside of all the structures and belief systems and stuckness that we are prone to by living in this world. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. Yeah, there's a story in the, um, what chapter is it in? It's in the, uh, the walking as presence chapter. And I title the story, she was a portal because it's literally, it's about this incredible, I won't spoil the story. It's a great story. I want you to get into it, but if you happen to read it or listen, but it's about a Pyrenean sheepdog. I love that story. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I was going to ask you to either tell that story or another one that, that you tell at the, at the end with yeah. another dog in Italy. So right. <laughs> yeah. take your pick. I would love for you to share a story because the book is so full of wonderful stories. I would love to go out with one of those stories. Sure. Yeah. Let's do... Well, since I was going to go that direction, let's do that one. Let's go with the one I was about to share. That sounds great. Since we've been talking portals so much, it makes sense. 
All right. This is then the walking is presence chapter and it's titled she was a portal i will never forget the way it felt hundreds of them i was surrounded each with their own unique steps and paths but entirely together this moment will be with me forever i was just arriving to the village of porta marin my father was a couple of hours behind me we had four more days by foot to reach santiago de compostela for the past 26 days, we had been walking the medieval Camino Francis pilgrim path in Spain. I started making my way across the new bridge, Ponte Nova de Porta Marin. It towered high above the Mino River and the old Porta Marin ruins. The old village of Porta Marin flooded in the 1960s. The new Porta Marin was reconstructed higher up in the mountains. As I moved along the bridge, the rail for pedestrians was especially low exposure to this lush expanse pushed my stomach into my chest my breathing deepened my eyes widened i loved and relished the exposure of it all i wanted to drink all of what i was seeing i had to go explore the old ruins below throughout our camino we walked alongside people from all over the world on a mix of ancient gravel roads dirt paths and streets Pilgrim villages, towns, and cities dotted the route every two to four miles. Rolling hills, flowing streams, wondrous trees, unhurried time. My father and I would walk together for the first three miles and then decide where we would meet or finish along the way. My father, David Milton Coxstalls, played in three Super Bowls, founded an award-winning, widely respected urban youth center in Denver called The Spot, fiercely loves his children and grandchildren, and so much more. He has inspired me from day one, and I will never begin to thank the stars enough for having him as my father and friend. I still cherish all the simple moments shared in those early morning walking hours, always with the rising sun, quietly moving with a cool breeze, long stretches without words, each step, each laugh, each story, each blister, each warm cafe con leche before we parted. We were walking in September 2012 and water levels were low. I dropped off my things at the albergue pilgrim hostel. I turned back toward the bridge and found some rugged stone stairs. Since it was low, I had to crawl and climb my way down through mud and tall grass. I ventured out into the valley and already knew the spot that was calling to me. It was a tall and broken corner wall structure. Large weathered stones were mostly covered when the river was full. I climbed up to the top. It felt like I was all alone. I was in another world. The new bridge towered above me. I pulled out my journal to reflect on the day and sketch my surroundings. As I began sketching, I noticed that something was coming toward me on the horizon. It resembled forming waves in the ocean as they make their way to the shore. I rubbed my eyes and put down my journal. My feet were now dangling on the corner of the old wall. Now I see it. An enormous herd of sheep were making their way across the river valley. I relaxed my arms and calmed my gaze. My vantage point high up on the wall was incredible. While it may have only been 10 minutes, it felt like hours for them to arrive. Some would wander off and climb the old walls. Some stopped to eat grass. Most were bumping into one another and moving along. The sounds, the bells, the bleeding cries. As they began to surround the old building I was sitting on, a couple of them tried to climb up. Every inch of bright green grass was now covered by a chorus of woolly gray and white bodies. 
It almost felt like I was being carried by the herd, stone wall and all. The stones rumbled underneath me as they moved. I kept wondering who or what was guiding this massive herd. There were no humans in sight, no trucks, no horses. As I peered around the edges of this ocean of sheep, my eyes and heart widened when I saw two huge Pyrenean mastiffs combing the entire herd. I had never seen anything like it. Two dogs guiding hundreds of sheep. They were doing what they were made to do, nurturing and protecting the herd. I felt compelled to meet them, to move with them, if they would have me. I took a deep breath. As soon as I started making my way down, I felt and noticed that the dogs were watching my every move. One was way in front and the other was well behind. I softly landed. I tried so hard to be as gentle as possible. As soon as my feet hit the ground, the dog in the front perked its head all the way up, signaling the one in the back who was closer. As I started to slowly move, surrounded by stumbling sheep, the dog from the back forced her way through the tightly packed herd. Her face was fierce. The flowing long white hair, the size of her frame, the confidence, the galaxy inside of and around her, the stare. Time stopped. She came right up to me. Her eyes never left mine. She had no other purpose but to protect the herd. I felt that my capacity to be present and humble was a life or death situation. It was exhilarating and terrifying. I have never in my life felt this way before. Everything in the background began to fade away. She was a portal. Her gaze and face were focused and sharp. I was being scanned on the inside and out by a lineage of mastiffs dating back hundreds of years. Could I be trusted? What was my intention? I knew that leaning down to pet her was not an option. As someone who has only really known domestic pet dogs, that was my default. I knew I needed to keep my hands to myself. I needed her approval and permission to take one more step. I remained completely still. I tried to source humility and patience, both in my heart and posture, as much as I could. I breathed deep and transitioned from looking into her eyes, looking up at the sky, and closing my eyes, constantly checking in on my intentions. She smelled my legs and circled me several times. In a matter of moments, moments that felt like an eternity, she slowly nudged my leg with her nose and started slowly walking forward. It felt like I was given permission to at least begin moving. I wasn't sure, so I was extra gentle with each step. After a couple of minutes, she turned her head up toward mine. I felt a shift. Her eyes communicated kindness and ease. I slowly, very slowly, started walking forward. As soon as I did, she came even closer to my side, brushing my right leg with her large white fur with every step. It was as if the rhythm of our movement was the final test. The large bridge was now directly above us, and I noticed that the other dog in the front was periodically looking back, exchanging eye contact with her. Could I continue to be humble and present? Could I continue checking in with my intentions? Would I know when or if I was being asked to leave? We continued to slowly move. A few more minutes went by. She was beginning to trust me. Tears began to flow. 
I was smiling and weeping in surrender and awe. Nothing else mattered. The fog in my eyes and heart began to clear, and I was able to more fully see the hundreds of sheep surrounding us again. After several more minutes, she paused. She looked up at me with calmness and warmth. That face, those eyes. I was released. I earned her trust. She slowly walked away toward the back. She began nudging some of the sheep who had wandered away. At that moment, the other dog in the front did the same. There I was. I was one of the many. I walked with this community of angels for another 30 minutes. When I felt it was time to leave, I stopped and relaxed my arms. I clasped my hands together and looked for the two dogs. They both noticed that I had stopped right away and perked up their heads. They knew. I knew that they knew. I waved and I smiled. Tears rushed. As I made my way back to the bridge, I placed my hand on my heart. My whole being was full. I will never, ever forget them. This exchange tapped into every ache I have ever had about the way I longed for life to be with myself, with other humans, with animals, and with the natural world around me. That is such an incredibly beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking. Yeah, it always takes me right back <laughs> every time. It's been so wonderful talking with you. Oh, likewise. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm grateful for our conversation as well. Thank you for the questions and the care and all of it. Jonathan Stalls spent 242 days walking across the country in 2010 and has continued to walk alongside thousands of people for thousands of miles. He describes himself as a walking artist. He advocates and organizes for racial, economic, and social justice. He's currently the creator of Intrinsic Paths and the Pedestrian Dignity Campaign, and he's the founder of Walk to connect. And he's the author of this wonderful book, Walk, Slow Down, Wake Up, and Connect at one to three miles per hour. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you. Awesome. Thank you, Tonio. Take a look at the stars Catch a glimpse of the way things are Making contact Making contact Making contact Making contact Smell of sweet fresh oil on skin When you move on me like the tide coming in
the rhythm of circumstance Making contact Making contact Making contact Making contact I feel so huge, I feel so small I feel so good, I wanna swallow it all Making contact Making contact Making contact Making contact So many ways to understand One for every woman and man Been that way since the world itself were the same, but now they're separate. It's a challenge to know the one and to also know the other. When I was younger, I'd get confused sometimes, and since what we know is what we see, sometimes I'd get confused about what I was seeing. I wouldn't know whether I was seeing sound or hearing light. Once, I kept hearing little songs, faint at first, then more and more clearly. I followed them was trying to find out where they came from. They drew me forward. I walked a long way into the woods. There was snow everywhere, but I didn't even notice because now I'm totally hypnotized. I had to find the source of the songs. After a long time, I found myself high up on a mountainside, surrounded by pine trees, practically buried in snow. The wind was whistling. The snow was blowing all around like in a glass ball. Everything got kind of swirled up together. I was confused. Suddenly, the wind died down. At that exact same moment, I saw the opening of a cave. A big, yawning mouth of a cave. And coming out of it was snoring. I could hear snoring quite clearly. And slowly it dawned on me. I was hearing the bears snoring in their caves. And then I saw it. The songs I thought I was hearing were the dreams of the bears as they lay curled in their caves, sleeping through the wintertime. See? 
dreams are a kind of thought form, and I was actually seeing the bear's dream thoughts, but I thought I was hearing them. They looked just like little songs, very sweet, not like you'd think, not with the way bears are and all. Anyhow, I'd been so mesmerized, I'd walked so far. Now, I was lost. It was night. The moon was shining on the blue snow, and the shadows quivered in the wind. I was freezing. The wolves were howling. I didn't have much choice. I crept into the cave. It was warm and furry in there, and I was so tired from walking so far in the snowy woods. I just curled up and went to sleep. The next thing I knew, I was awakened by tremendous noises, clashing and thrashing and banging and crashing and big, big, big noises. Jambavan, the bear, was locked in a terrible battle with a mighty warrior. The ground trembled. The air was filled with blazing flashes. I started backing away as fast as I could, but I tripped over something. I'm afraid I let out a kind of a yelp, because all of a sudden they both stopped and looked over at me. There I am, staring up at Jambavan, the powerful, the great, the bear of all the bears, and at the mighty warrior who I'm beginning to realize looks a lot like Lord Vishnu, who just happens to be Lord of the Universe. I'm trying to figure out what to do when Jambavan says, Who are you, little girl? Now, the question of identity has been a pretty big question for a pretty long time. Philosophies, religions, sciences, the arts, all the great minds have grappled with the mystery of the self. Some say it's good, some say it's bad, some say it doesn't really exist. There's a lot of learning about this question. But all those great ideas can go right out of your head when the Lord of the Universe and the bear are both looking deep into your eyes and waiting for an answer. There was nothing for it but to tell the truth. My name is Little Frida. Beyond that, well, I'm still working on it. Jambavan looked at Lord Vishnu. They both shrugged, and Jambavan turned back to me and said, Well, that's a start. I think it was the great Dolly Parton who said, Find out who you are, and then do it on purpose. This isn't as easy as it sounds. Most people don't even know they don't know who they are. Most people think they got it down. But underneath that everyday walking around driver's license ID kind of thing, there's a secret slushiness. If you follow that I, the one who says, I can, I do, I am, follow it deep down into your DNA, you'll find it goes all wispy. This deep down wispiness means things can go all wobbly. And if you get too close to the edge of that, it makes you dizzy. You need some kind of stability, some ground to stand on, something you can name. And this is good, this naming, because it calms people down. Naming and knowing and going along with whatever face reality shows you. It's a work in progress. Who are you? Life lesson number three. 
the truth conceals itself by being nameless, and you do too. Little Frida's life lessons come courtesy of ZBS Media at zbs.org. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.